1: Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC.
0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining us today. I just finished talking with Matthew Jones about his new book, Reckoning with Matter. Calculating Machines, Innovation, and Thinking About Thinking, From Pascal to Babbage. This came out in 2016 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a fascinating book on a lot of levels, um, but what I want to say right at the outset is it's really a pleasure to read. The writerly qualities of this book um, are just quite beautiful. And so whether or not you consider yourself to be deeply already interested in and engaged in the history of technology, of calculation, Of mathematics in early modernity in the 18th century and the 19th century, and it covers all of those topics. It's really just, frankly, a pleasure to read. So, what the book does, as you'll hear about um, in the hour to come, is it looks at efforts to, and specifically failed efforts, which is fascinating, right, to create calculating machines between the middle of the 17th century and the 19th century with some attention to. The 20th and 21st centuries at the end. Um, And in doing so, it traces, among other things, histories of the relationships between imitation and innovation, um, between sort of group and individual making, between the hand and the mind, and lots and lots of other um dichotomies that h- hopefully by the end of the book and by the end of um, the conversation, you'll come to think of as not necessarily um, dichotomies at all. Um, and so one of the things the book does is really challenge our tendency of thinking in terms of these dichotomies by showing us a path that at every step along the way either engages or embraces a challenge to those dichotomies. So it's fascinating. Um, People who are interested in the history of science and technology will have a ton of stuff to look at here if you're interested in the history of computing, of patent law, of uh, intellectual property, of engineering, of visual culture, um, and much, much more. There's a ton of material here of interest. So with that, I will let you get to it um, and just say it was such a pleasure to talk with Matt about this and really a pleasure to read the book, and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on it after listening. Thanks very, very much for listening um, and for the support of the channel that that constitutes. I'm here to talk with Matthew Jones about his new book, Reckoning with Matter. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Matt, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time to talk with me today, and thanks for writing such an approachable and such a fascinating new book. It's a pleasure to have you on the channel.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me today, Carla, and uh, especially for taking the time to, to read my book and uh, ask me to talk about it. Of
0: course. So, Matt, let's start with the traditional question that we open with for the channel. Um, and this is a big one, right? How did you come to work on the history of science and technology as your academic field?
1: So... You know it 's a story that 's not unusual in the history of science. I was someone who was you know completely captivated by oh, computer programming mathematics uh, in, in in middle school and high school and um, and showed up at college uh, rearing to go to become a mathematician or, or some sort of uh, some sort of engineer and I happened into uh, a seminar in the history of science and In entirely sort of transformed my worldview. And it really got into, it it opened up a series of questions and it began answering questions that I was having there as I was sitting in a pure math class, which I was simultaneously loving and um, uh, finding profoundly challenging in all kinds of wonderful ways. And as I continued as an undergraduate, I found that the problems that were engaging me were ones that Uh, A deep level of scientific competency was essential. But the questions that really um, were most essential were ones about how is it that at different moments in time, different uh, conceptions of knowledge came to be uh, 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 the most important. And in particular, I was really interested in how we could understand mathematical change in time, and the ways in which Mathematics, which seems like the eternal truth from the Greeks forward, actually has a history that is that is extremely variegated um, and one in which we could understand moments of what it was to think mathematically. And I became very captivated by the question of when is it when are the moments in history that we've come to see? Uh, mathematical expertise is really important for the organization of our society, of our schools, of our government, Um, and to look at the moments when that changes dramatically. And those changes are ones both of uh, the mathematics itself, what counts as rigorous and what the information that's needed in that mathematics and in the kind of experts involved. So I... It was very much an opportunity to combine, as it were, a scientific concern with mathematics with a very humanistic concern uh, with the creation of kinds of people and a social scientific concern with the notion of expertise. And so I found myself in this unbelievably exciting world that combined interests I had in technical with interest I had in, in, in fundamentals, uh, uh, fundamental questions of the organization of power and its relation to technical knowledge.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. So let's actually move from that to the book that we're here to talk about today. And I'll say a little bit um, just to kind of summarize what's going on and then um, ask you to talk a little bit about how you came to the project. So in the words of the book, the book studies failed efforts to contrive calculating machines alongside their creators reflections on the inventive process. So in doing so, it traces the history of these efforts from the work of Pascal in the 1640s through that of Babbage in the 19th century, with some attention at the end in an epilogue that we may have time to talk about to what came after. Now, by following this story, the book also offers a perspective on a kind of division between what we might think of as two poles of writing the history of technology. One is the collective, and this is in the words of the book, the collective deterministic account of inventive activity, and then the individualistic, heroic, creative account. So, this is um, so in the course of reading the book, what we find is that there is what you call a third way of understanding cultural production in early modernity. And this is a way that doesn't bifurcate between imitation and originality, between social making and individual making, or between design and production. So, I wanted to lay that out right at the beginning because these concerns really permeate every chapter of the book. So, as we talk about the chapters in turn, all of this is going to be. Um, kind of in the background and sometimes in the foreground. So, Matt, how did you come to this topic? How did you come specifically to decide to work on calculating machines?
1: So, thank you for the extremely lucid uh, summary of oh, some of the key. Mostly from the book. <laughs> thank you. So, I had written. I had written a book about how mathematics was conceived as a form of self cultivation in the 17th century, a very theoretically minded book about uh, a very abstract practice um, and a very abstract practice designed to steal the, the soul essentially against the, um, the controversies, the war, the, the tragedies of early modern Europe. Um, And Nonetheless, two of the figures in the book, uh, Blaise Pascal and uh, Gottfried Leibniz, were at once mathematicians and philosophers, but they also are very famous for having produced these machines. And I wanted to get into what did it mean when someone who was famous as a philosopher and mathematician um, attempted to invent something, to produce something in the material world, and particularly to do so in a moment before you have... Uh, any form of standardized materials, any form of standardized uh, form of technical communication in which there's an intense uh, plasticity, a transformation of of the, the kind of competencies that artisans and other people have in working with materials. So I really wanted to say, what happens if I think about philosophers trying to make something, and particularly making things and finding it enormously challenging? And So I began with these famous philosophers, and one of the benefits of doing that, and a lot of the figures, is that the kinds of people that records get kept about are people who are important in state formation or are important noble people, that there's a density of documentation. Um, around many of these machines. And that density of documentation far outstrips the real significance of the machines in, say, calculation at the time, or in comparison to a lot of everyday machines. But that that documentation allows us to peer into a whole series of subjects. And so I moved, as I began investigating these machines, I started tacking, to use a kind of nautical metaphor, between... The kinds of documentation I was finding, which wasn't necessarily what I was looking for, um, and a series of different concerns in, 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 in histories of technology and histories of creation, some of it very contemporary concerns about intellectual property and issues in, in the history of philosophy about what is the relationship between machines and thinking. Um, and so the machine, the book gradually grew from looking at these two famous figures to investigating uh, some of the artisans that they worked with, and trying to learn about them based on the documentation re- record. Then finding out that much of the documentation, as is often the case, is about transactions, about money and uh, ownership, and, uh, and and things like that, and linking that. In with concerns about how do we understand property and ideas. Um, uh, and then gradually I the book actually exploded when I was confronted by a sort of strange thing. Throughout the 18th century, so a century after Pascal and Leibniz, there's this huge proliferation of imitations. And for a long time I actually wrote them off completely as uninteresting. And in the course of researching the book, I found the question of imitation to be one of the fundamental ones. And so from a, uh, from a dismissal in my own project, in fact, in dismissals I wrote for grant proposals and other sorts of things, it ended up being the fundamental question that drove much of the intellectual inquiry um, uh, that in, in the middle sections of the book. Um, and then all along I wanted to do – I knew I wanted to do something. I wanted to do a history that was grounded in people working – and working in conjunction with philosophers, and then to bring that back and say, how does this matter in the history of philosophy? So I wanted to write something in which I was going to be talking about matter and working with matter and people working with matter. And then I wanted to talk about when people think about that process, how does it matter? How does it, how does it influence their thinking that they went through the experience of actually trying to build something? Um, and so that was a goal that uh, – I I kept all along and then attempted to weave into uh, the form of many of the chapters.
0: Excellent. And speaking of the issue of form, this is actually one of the really fascinating things about the book. So the structure of the book itself is really interesting and really thoughtful in the way Um, That it's built. The chapters are actually interspersed with sections called carry sections. And we can talk about why that is, right? Sort of what it is, um, this theme of carrying um, and the importance of carrying as a figure that goes throughout the book but we'll get to that in a moment. So there there are these sections that are carry sections that relate the story of Charles Babbage's difference engine through the lens of the major theme that animates the previous chapter. So there'll be a chapter, there'll be a carry that looks at Babbage, there'll be another chapter, another carry, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Um, How did this case of Babbage specifically become so central as the thread um, that we keep coming back to in these carry sections? And how did you Um, think about and decide on this particular kind of structure for the book? Uh,
1: So I I knew that I was going to begin with these famous 17th century philosopher figures. And the natural endpoint was Charles Babbage, who produced yet another failed attempt at producing a calculation. And early on, I decided I really didn't want to end that way, because it produces a kind of history in which there's a kind of inbuilt developmental story that begins with one philosopher and ends with one philosopher. And I wanted to end rather with the way in which everyday machines became commercialized by people that are infinitely less famous than any of the people I've been talking about. It was produced by entrepreneurs in a number of European countries who managed to market these towards the end of the 19th century. I wanted to end somewhere around there. And yet I was struggling with what should I do with Babbage, who in some sense is rightly one of the most famous figures in the history of computing or the history of the, the pre-computing. and. And so Babbage, like these other figures, has this intense accumulation of documents. And the documents are about all of the themes that I was finding elsewhere. And so instead of writing a chapter where I ended with Babbage, in which I kind of went over many of the same things, I decided to write chapters that were thematically linked to, the, to a chapter before and a chapter after, and to really place Babbage in Uh, In the early 19th century, very much having one foot in an 18th century world with 18th century artisanal practice, with 18th century practices of industrial espionage, with 18th century practices of negotiation and uh, a state that is not what we would think of as a properly bureaucratic state and one foot. In a world of de-skilling, one foot in the world of classical economics, one world, one foot in the world of, um, uh, of an intellectual property and patents that, that we would have. And so the, the sections, which fortunately, um, you know, the press was really interested in, uh, allow me to bridge that and include Babbage and to make him resonate and read him in new ways, but not make him the end point of the book, um,
0: now, one of the really ingenious kinds of work that this does is it materializes in the body, in the physicality of the book, a persistent theme that you also talk about in the chapters. And this is a history of efforts to mechanize the process of carrying ones in addition. So I mentioned that these intervening um, kind of moments are called carries, first carry, second carry. This evokes um, not just a name, but also in terms of the move right? That it's making the this process of carrying the ones. So Matt, um, for listeners who are like, what the heck is that carrying the ones? What do you mean? Um, can you in um, kind of broad terms, talk a little bit about what that is and the significance of that to the work that's happening in the book and with these calculating engines?
1: Absolutely. So carrying ones is something that almost everyone who was trained in arithmetic before the, say, mid-90s would have done from first grade. So uh, if you take, for example, imagine yourself adding uh, 45 and 5. When you add the 5 and the 5 in the 1s column, uh, you get 10, and so you have to write the little 1 over the 4 to get 50. Now, that process is one that we learn both intellectually and then ultimately by rote. Um, uh, A lot of math education today actually massively de-emphasizes this. Um, And it's a process that involves complications when you look at cases when you say have a whole series of nines. So if you had, say, 999 and you add a one, the the, the nine plus one in the ones column has a carry. That produces a nine plus one in the ten column, which in, causes a carry, which causes a, uh, which means that you have a nine plus one in the hundreds column, which causes a carry and gives you one thousand. Now, what the why this is technologically tricky, is that it demands a level of precision of machining that was very challenging well into the nineteenth century because there are two problems, and they're quite straightforward in some sense one is that you have to make sure that when you have what is essentially you could think of as just clockwork in most cases when you're doing one of these carries the movement of the gears has to always stay at an at at, at, at a counting number let's say so it goes from one to two not one to Mm 1.9995 and similarly if you have a number like nine hundred ninety nine and you add one, your machine is got to have some source of energy or force which is going to allow that that carry after carry what's called the propagation of carry to happen and this turned out to be very. A, a, a grave, one of the grave technical challenges. So it's a problem that human beings, human beings surmount both of those regularly, easily. But to produce a robust machine that's capable of doing that was an in- incredible technical challenge. And so I use that as the case because it's something that is theoretically very simple to grasp for these philosophers and every practical implementation of it a grave challenge up into the through the 20th century.
0: And I love this because this really materializes, I think, one of, um, at least for me as a reader, the persistent themes of the book, which is really the... the- kind of drive or the need to think about the physicality of mathematics, right, the physicality of calculation. Um, And it's uh, thinking about how to make a machine that does this. It's actually, it seems really simple, but it's quite transformative if you really get into this story. And so I really loved that about the book. Now, these challenges that you mentioned, right, Um, both um, the way you put this in chapter one is converting analog motions to digital results, um, and propagating carries over a series of digits from right to left by providing enough force, this all huh? comes up in Chapter 1. Chapter 1 looks at the 17th century efforts of Blaise Pascal and Sir Samuel Moreland to make calculating machines, and it focuses specifically on their relationships with skilled artisans. Now, the approaches toward those relationships of these two men were actually quite different. Um, So let's maybe talk just very briefly about each of these cases, um, just to kind of get a sense of what the range was. Moreland, on one hand, celebrated the artisans who constructed his machines. He named them. He gave accounts of their labors. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you find particularly interesting in his approach to his relationships with artisans in this context?
1: Yeah, so Sir Sir Samuel Moreland is a a sort of remarkably colorful figure who did a lot of things, and calculating machines were just one of many things. And almost every endeavor um, uh, uh, which Moreland undertook, most of them unsuccessful, but many uh, producing remarkable things, he was sort of remarkably skilled at bringing together uh, different sorts of people usually in London, but not exclusively, who had competencies that he didn't. Um, And to drawing upon them uh, to help him um, in the execution of something that he often had only uh, a sort of uh, vague general idea of what it is that he wanted to do. And I was really lucky. I found this document in the British Library one day, and it was a breakdown of a whole series of procedure so that these three named artisans um, uh, were to do. And the three artisans uh, that are there, it it were among the most sophisticated, uh, most forward thinking, most innovative figures that you could find in, in London in the middle of the 17th century. And Moreland was just enormously skilled at bringing those people together. And then, rewarding them in such a way in recognizing the significance of their labor, um, that they came together to produce, um, a remarkable object, which is now in, uh, uh, in, 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 the Human history science museum in, in Florence. Um, and so Moreland, that was his, in some sense, his expertise is a kind of above all, is the bringing together technically adept people to produce things. And he did this in many sorts of domains, and he documented it even when he had a bill of sale. Um, Pascal jumped into this as a kind of boy genius figure um, about whom all sorts of mythologies had spread by the time he was even in his teens and who had, you know, with claims that he had rediscovered large amounts of Euclid on his own. He was the kind of classic hubristic mathematician and would later write a lot about being this kind of person. Um, his father was this tax official trying to impose the law in Normandy at a moment of, of great upset. And, Pascal wanted to implement a machine, but he had no experience working with uh, uh, with practical artisans, and in particular, had little sense of the wide variation in artisanal skill, mastery, and innovation that existed in, in various parts of France, uh, both in Normandy and in Paris, where he'd later be working. And he ended up having a very tense relationship, largely driven by a sense that the nature of uh, the, the productive relationship was one in which he gave orders
0: mm-hmm.
1: and which artisans implemented, um, And he came in his writings about this. And what we, have, unfortunately with Pascal, we have no traces of who the artisans were, but we have a bunch of polemical literature he wrote. Um, he, he depicted a, a sense of his skills in, in in designing, in which he absorbed a lot of language and attributes that the most skilled artisans of of France, the kind of people that Moreland was depending on, understood as their competencies um, and so ultimately his relationships were profoundly fraught, and in fact he had to deal with issues of counterfeiting from the start. And so he ultimately he wrote being a, a sort of more philosophical character than Moreland. He offered a very polemical account of what the relationship is between a philosopher, a philosopher inventor, and an artisan, which described a kind of vision of technological development, which we basically know is almost never the case. And so I was interested both in the, reality, in, in the fact that with Moreland, we could understanding, reconstruct the world in which he, can, he made this. And then the, a document that Pascal wrote, which then becomes important, actually, in a lot of early modern thinking about what technological change is. One that we, as historians of technology, largely reject, but which remains really important in understanding of invention as a cognitive primarily process rather than something that involves social coordination and, and and bodily skills
0: and one of the things that I really love um, about the work that the book does, in taking us into the work and the thoughts and the lives of these people is it really brings them alive as fascinating um, figures by using, I think really ingeniously, um, like sprinkling little details into the stories that for me are just amazing. So, for example, later on in the book, um, we learned that one of the things that Moreland did was devising machines for making breakfast. And I just love that. And then in this chapter, you talk about um like Pascal's invocation of a story about a frog that tears the eyes out of a fish, like to show the frog's actions don't stem from what appears to be choice or free will. And so there's this whole reason, but then we also get to read about this really cool story about a frog and a pike. And so there's all (laughs) kinds of fabulous storytelling details in here that I really appreciated as a reader. Now, as we move though from this to the next chapter, um and just to signal to readers, there is also between this chapter and number two, there's a carry um, that looks at Babbage and um, his relationship, among other things, with his engineer, Joseph Clement. Um, we come to a chapter chapter two, that carries some of these concerns into a look at the work of Leibniz and Hook. Now, this chapter looks very closely at the issue of credit, financial and intellectual credit to the work of these men and their associates. Part of the chapter is based on what sounds like a super fascinating source base. This is Leibniz's working papers on his machines, and we won't have time to really talk about this in detail, but I just want to signal um, for listeners that uh, there's a really fascinating discussion here of the contributions of artisans to Leibniz's work, the way those efforts are coordinated, and in particular, the relationship and coordination between Leibniz and a clockmaker, Um, Olivier, I think. Um, Olivier, yeah. Olivier. Um, And so there's a really wonderful discussion in this chapter of that. Now, what I want to ask you about, though, just in in the interest of time, but feel free to bring that in if you want, is um, how the story turns to Hook. Um, because this evokes an issue that's going to continue to be important in the book. And this is the issue of imitation and originality and creation. So Hook made actually his own arithmetical engine. He makes it much, much more quickly than Leibniz. And in part, this is due to the fact that he gets a peek at Leibniz's work. So why for you, Matt, is this significant? Like, Why, why is this a significant part of the story um, in terms of how you're thinking about this chapter?
1: So um, Hook is a a sort of famously uh, querulous figure of the 17th century. And like uh, Samuel Moreland we were just talking about, he's someone deeply embedded in – a whole lot of worlds uh, of London. He's someone who knows if you need bronze and you need bronze of a certain quality, he knows where to go. If you need someone to sell you really good springs, he knows a guy. And literally a lot of the book is about the fact that people like Hook and Moreland know a guy. Mm-hmm. And because knowing a guy is what you need to know to know material in the 17th century. And so Hook stands for that. But as you're, you are you are quite right, it's, it's very much about credit. And the tension between... Leibniz and Hook is one in which you have two different understandings of what it means to uh, have some sort of property or propriety in uh, something you've created. Hook works very much in a long-standing um, culture of uh, of imitating technological things um, and in trying to improve them, and it becomes a theme that I develop later in the book and becomes very much developed in actually European philosophy, aesthetics, and a lot of other domains. And so for Hooke, it is enormously, it is completely standard to take a glance at something and say, oh, I can do better. Because in many cases, he can. That's He is the kind of master artisan or more than artisan who, who can do this. Leibniz is working in in, in, a, in, in a different – in the beginnings of a different way of seeing something in which the – he has a sense that the substance of his invention is something that belongs to him. And so when Hooke looked at it, Hooke was the kind of guy who could grasp in an instant what the, 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 the trick was, what the key technological development was, even though Leibniz had not brought it to completion. And so it's a moment in the book in which we have a clash between uh, a, a, a way of copying that goes far back and is, in fact, central to the entire question of uh, how European technological development builds on um, things from the Near East and Far East in in, in the late medieval period um, to Leibniz working within a realm of increasing understanding of uh, of, of a priority that might be attached to an idea. Um, and thus it, 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 becomes a clash of issues of credit without there being strong language or legal doctrine or philosophical accounts yet to articulate this. all. So it really opens up that this is going to be a, a serious concern for, for the rest of the book.
0: And we see this concern with credit, um, coming up as well in chapter three. This Uh is a chapter, right, that looks again at the efforts of um, three men that we've talked about already, Pascal, Moreland, and Leibniz, but now from the perspective of the prehistory or a prehistory of intellectual property. So it looks closely at what the book calls, and this is in the words of the book, early modern systems for protecting and encouraging manufacturers and indirectly invention. And it does this with the help of an unusual amount of documentation about the machines of these three men. And that amount of documentation, as I think you've already signaled um, in your opening comments today, is in part due to the fact that they're so well-known, right? So we have Pascal, we have Moreland, and we have Leibniz. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about um, in this chapter, Matt, but what I'm going to do is just kind of hit the ball back to you and open up a fairly general question. Um, In your accounts of the way that each one of these men kind of hooks into this prehistory of intellectual property, there are important differences here uh, and there's some commonalities. So for you, what are some of the most, I mean, briefly put significant or interesting commonalities or differences among these cases of these three men in terms of how we might inform a prehistory of intellectual property?
1: So I, 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 it turns out in in researching this, I discovered that in histories of intellectual property, often some of the documentation around Pascal is given a privileged status. And especially in an older way of looking at it, because it was one of the first documents in which an inventor appears to be given uh, a monopoly on the creation of something based on an idea. And, I was curious about how this could come to be. And it turns out to be entirely non-representative. And so in my chapter, to get back to your question, um, I have two figures who are profoundly unrepresentative of uh, what's going on with what are the broad equivalents to patents in the 17th century and in the, in the, in the, the, the early modern period. Leibniz and Pascal, who are both attempting to get something which provides them with uh, protection for ideas and protection for ideas across lots of political jurisdictions. And so I was curious about what, were the, what, what made this thinkable? What made this possible for them? And in contrast to both of them, Um, I had Moreland, who operates within much more a realm of attempting to secure monopolies, um, which are bounded by geographical areas, are very temporally bounded, and are about actual building processes. This is where uh, patent law came from in the period. And so the chapter brings out, I think, the question of the strangeness of a lot of what we think of as intellectual property indeed the very the very the very intellectual part of intellectual property and says if these are some of the earliest glimmers of this why should that come up and and again it's precisely because you have these famous ph- philosophical figures interacting with materials who are able on the one hand to write about it but also get the attention of people involved in the state um, in Pascal's case to actually get uh, the equivalent of a patent and in uh, Leibniz's case to fail to do so.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, one of the really interesting things that happens here, and and I won't go into too much detail so that we can kind of move on, but you're showing that what it is that was actually granted um, a privilege or, right, the equivalent of a patent. Um, it was not at all um, what we might imagine or take for granted as being patented, right? So Pascal, you show at some point in this chapter, is granted a privilege over, quote, all possible machines with any mechanism or material that performed arithmetic with automatic carry. And the privilege seems, as you show here, um, not to have covered any particular mechanism for doing that, but rather to cover the goal of doing that. Right? I mean, and just conceptualizing that, for me, um, is really interesting. I mean, that itself is a really interesting part of this chapter.
1: Yeah, and it's you know in, in in fact the way patent law comes to be organized uh, say in the 19th century in the United States and other sorts of places there is an insistence on the need for the materialization of ideas. So um, Pascal's uh, example is something that has kind of uh, long been a dream of certain kinds of patent lawyers who uh, in the 20th century have pushed. Uh, the uh, patent jurisprudence ever closer to the notions of patenting ideas or patenting math. This is very much in the news. Um, And so what I really wanted to get across was that what I wanted to say, how historically do we understand when someone is able to make a claim that that is something that might be understood as property? And what sort of relationships do they have to have to people in power (laughs) such that that might obtain? Um, Because it turns out that uh, one of the things that abusive monarchs are held to do is to provide abusive monopolies. And so in both the French and the American revolutions, the very fact of having a monopoly is is one that's not obvious a republic should do. And it ends up being a huge concession in the United States that we should have copyright and, and monopoly protections, uh, patent protections.
0: Mm-hmm. And the chapter actually pays really interesting attention to, um, just as you're saying the relationship between kind of privilege and patent and credit and sovereign power. Um so this is this is perhaps a very timely issue. Um,
1: so, Absolutely.
0: Exactly. And I'll just leave that there. Um, this is a really relevant issue right now, I think, for a lot of us. Okay, so this brings us to chapter four. Chapter four moves us into the 18th century to look at the emulation um, of calculating machines across Europe. And so here we get into this really interesting, um, or we get further rather into this really interesting case an issue of emulation and imitation. So the chapter pays special attention to the relationship between imitation and innovation in the 18th century. And the vision of invention that's manifest in the cases explored here, and you look at various different cases um, that are kind of geographically spread out, was one that incorporated emulation within it. So in these cases, and, and here's what I want to ask you or invite you to talk a little bit about, in these cases, it seems um, from the chapter that two major factors were in play. One was a notion of emulative invention, and at the same time was the importance of the absence of information about calculating machines. And you kind of show here that these two factors taken together are actually contributing to the production of a whole bunch of calculating machines designed around very different principles. So this is really interesting, Matt, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you think is most interesting and important about what's going on in the latter part of what I just said.
1: So uh, the idea... I, I was really struck when I started investigating all of these imitative machines, which, as I said earlier on, I had totally, absolutely blown off, um, that so many of the inventors uh, professed ignorance of what had gone uh, gone before. And, in fact, it's pretty – the documentation is relatively clear that they, in fact, had um, a, 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 a real lack of knowledge about the – the, the, their predecessors. This was, I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that we live in the wake of one of the major claims about economic development of the 18th century, which is largely that um, economic development is perhaps best enabled by the sharing of information. Um, and, uh, I- I- you know, inefficiency in I- informational flows is is one of the things that uh, restrains economic growth, say. And so I thought it was really interesting to look at a case where in some sense the opposite was true because it was precisely the motivating factor of the lack of information that was so important. Now, this matters much more broadly um, the the calculating machines, again, they are small fry compared to the vast number of commodities. But one of the things that's most striking about, of course, 18th century Europe, um, we increasingly know is that so much of uh, European innovation in everyday wares, in uh, all kinds of uh, technologies was what – is often referred to as import substitution for goods that were produced in the far East. Um, and it meant coming up with local ways of replicating, uh, Everything from cloth to uh, ceramics and other sorts of things such that you didn't have the uh, flow of species. So the machines ended up being part of actually a very global narrative of Europeans working from a position of technological inferiority. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to conjoin that with the way in which this then becomes – Linked into this broad discussion of emulation, which is at once a discussion in philosophy coming from Aristotle, a discussion of how you ought to organize the state and the economy, and a really everyday practice for elite artisans throughout Europe um, in which people traveled in order to look at machines along the ways that we were just talking about Hook um, and then to try to take, go home and try to improve on them. And that is given uh an important economic role and an important philosophical role. And so the story for me ended up being really interesting because it it, it accounts for this eighteenth century moment which is, you know, often taken to be the seedbed of European imperialism and these kinds of things, and there's important elements of that, but in which there's a deep understanding internally in Europe that uh there's a there's a sort of desperate need to replace goods from that are coming from Asia with something produced indigenously, and therefore valorizing inventive practices that are copying things—not quite exactly, but in in new sorts of ways. Um, and so, the generation of a lot of new technique comes from uh, uh, a celebration of of of, of copying, um, and particularly a particular celebration of the superior copying. And then this ends up resonating in really surprising ways in European philosophy uh, for the next century and a half.
0: Thank you so much. So as we move from here to the fifth chapter, we look at another really, really interesting case. And this is a case that's interesting not only on its own terms, but because it comes from a really fascinating, or what at least seems to me to be a really fascinating source base. So chapter five looks very closely at the creation of a series of calculating machines by the third Earl Stanhope. Now, this case is remarkably well documented, and the documents show the extent to which the process of invention was a material one and involved tacking back and forth between sketching and materializing and, and I Uh, the physicality and the ideas and it's just a really, really interesting process. So first let's talk briefly about this documentary source base, because this is really, really a striking part of this chapter. Where did you find this? And can you talk a little bit about what you think is most interesting about what's happening in these documents?
1: Yeah. So the, the, the figure in question is uh, um, a a, a man named Charles Stanhope and he was the third oral Stanhope and his family uh, died off with the seventh Earl. Stanhope and left a stately country home. Um, and this country home is traditionally used now by the foreign minister of the UK, uh, for visiting dis- dignitaries. Um, but because he was an Earl, one of the sort of highest forms of noble, his family's archive over the generations is, uh, it, it has been retained. Um, and it's been retained in, in, in detail that it even makes the sort of Leibniz archive. Leibniz, like many sort of famous philosophers, retained everything. But because Stanhope was someone who had business interests and, you know, vast financial holdings, was running a household, um, as well as, uh, having, you know, a, 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 a thousand schemes for improving the world, everything was retained. Um, uh, so bills, the works the, the bill that, you know, what, what things cost as well as his philosophical treatises. And then um, uh, the, at the heart of my chapter is a cache of notes, all his working papers um, from the the, 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 from the, in the entire inventive process. And he's someone who uh, the, the formative years of his life were actually in Geneva and he becomes a sort of radicalized Republican and ends up being essentially the only member of the House of Lords, who supports the French Revolution, which makes him very unpopular. Um, uh, so there's a political dimension to many of his papers that's equally remarkable. Now, along with these papers are the actual machines, and those machines are all in the Science Museum in London. So the archive is in um, uh, the, the the county archives in Kent, um, in Maidstone, Kent, and the, the machines are in the Science Museum in in, in London, largely because of Charles Babbage. Um, and what, what's what's remarkable is you can look at a piece of paper where Stanhope says to his artisan, fix this, fix this, fix this. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the machine in London, you see a number has been scratched off and replaced. Um, and to have realized that was one of the sort of most wonderful things I wished I had, you know, I could have the actual documents and machines in one place, but I was able to have photocopies of the documents, um, and the machines in one place. And as a result, I was able to sort of rework some of his own process of moving between a partially implemented machine, his drawings of that. And begin to unpack how this process worked by looking at both uh, the, the documents, not as static things, but things that he was constantly scratching out and saying this doesn't work and saying not this, but use this and circling this. And then similarly, the machine itself being almost a palimpsest. Um, And the technical guy, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, instrument curator named Michael Wright writes about this. He's like, this instrument seems like it was a a, a sort of half-hearted multiple attempts at making it work. Well, it was. That's precisely what it was. And so you have, uh, a, you know, a, a set of documents which are really palimpsistic and a machine that is palimpsistic. And that, it was, it was you know, one of those really lucky things that I came across um, uh, uh, when I was investigating one of many machines that one could read about in the literature.
0: And one of the really cool things um, that's related to exactly what you were just saying that comes out of this um, is the uh, kind of perhaps – upending of how we might think of the relationship between a sketch and then a thing that you make that's related to the sketch, right? I mean, I think a lot of listeners um, might assume that, okay, well, the relationship between a sketch and a machine is you sketch the thing and then you make the thing. Um, But you're showing here that the practice of sketching is actually not that at all, right? It's much more um, back and forth. It's much more, uh, it's just very different. So did you want to talk very briefly about that, about sort of sketching as part of this process? and the way that um, this might challenge how we think about or how we have thought about that relationship?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There is a model um, of understanding the relationship between sketching and technical drawing and other sorts of things and the creation of artifacts where it's almost a one-way street, which is that you draw out what you want to produce And you might start with the sketch, and then you're going to go to ever more formalized things in a modern setting. And then you're going to produce it. You're going to materialize it. And that turns out to be uh, both rather rare in history and something who the very possibility of we need to understand. Like when that is true, how does that come to be true? And so the case of Stanhope, one of the reasons I really love it, is on the one hand, it's – I mean, I'm probably too detailed, but I uh, was fortunate that the publisher was willing to print as many pictures uh, of his drawings because I really wanted to get aside the viscerality of his sketching practice and the way in which he really is saying, take this part of a machine I've already built. Here's a drawing of it. This part is terrible, but use this. Take this piece it off and it's text and the words. And so you can see the process is, is going back and forth. And you, we, you know, I've already mentioned, I love this nautical metaphor of tacking back and forth, but Stanhope also had a, a theory of invention, which didn't connect to that at all. Really a theory of invention in which he was aiming to have a process in which he would be able to completely envision something and then be able to produce it. Um, and, And that combination of, on the one hand, what the real technical practice looked like, this going back and forth in this wonderful generative way, and then a vision, a dream of what would would the technological system be such that sketching could be that one-way street was one that I thought was really interesting and one that helps us open up historically – the development of that view of sketching, which, as you said at the beginning of your question, is the one that a lot of us, um, yeah, have naturally. We're used to thinking that way, and we're used to thinking that way for a whole series of reasons. Of that, we in fact know examples by which sketching something can then materialize it, and you know, the advent of three D printing makes this seem. All the more uh, plausible, while simultaneously underlying that there's th- th- a particular set of materializations are precisely what enable you to be able to do that.
0: And you talked a little bit just now about Stanhope's theories of an in- or his theory of invention, and this actually um, leads us, I think, very nicely to chapter six. So chapter six looks at the roles played by calculating machines. Or not, um, actually, as it turns out, like or the role or the absences, right, of um, uh, the presence of calculating machines in 18th century reflections on the nature of thinking, the nature of mathematics, and original creation. So there's so much interesting stuff happening here, um, and we could probably talk for the next hour about (laughs) just what's happening in this chapter. Um, Now, one of the striking things that's happening early in the chapter is the absence of calculating machines from 18th century debates about whether matter could think. Um, And you say, and you give, I think, a very nice explanation here of the fact that they were just the wrong sort of matter to to think with. Um, but there's also a really interesting change that you chart over the course of this chapter, or a set of changes in attitudes toward the relationship between imitation and creation. Now, since that relationship is so crucial throughout the book, um, I, I think it's uh, probably a good place as we come toward our epilogue and toward the conclusion of our conversation um, to talk a little bit about where the book ends in terms of that relationship. So Matt, I'm thinking about the context of Chapter 6. What for you are some of the most interesting aspects of these changing attitudes in the relationship between imitation and creation that you're charting here in this chapter?
1: So um, I... I end the chapter with a few comments of the, the great 20th century logician and cryptographer, Alan Turing and Turing, who is very famous for his thoughts on intelligent machines, um, takes down human beings, uh, a bunch of notches. Um, and in, in a really interesting way. And he says, you know, what makes us think that we don't learn, um, by, uh, the cumulative absorption of things, what makes us think that we're so special in our, uh, in, 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 in our educational practices such that a machine couldn't possibly do this. And when Turing says this, he's actually kind of a throwback to uh, ways of thinking that get upended. Um, in, in, in the very end of the 18th century and become really important in, in the development of how we think about creation, how we think about literature, how we think about uh, uh, all, form, all sorts of forms of high culture in, in the 19th century. And that shift is one in which it is essential that creative things be original, um, that they not be in any way determined by uh pre-existing influences and those influences are largely understood as somehow uh you know matter hitting our eyeballs whether that matter means the other people's books or other people's machines or other sorts of things that however we understand creation there has to be some spark of the divine that is genius and so um th- Given that the, the previous chapters of the book are all about the richness of of um of the creative process in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, um, I was really struck to chart how that vision uh, comes to be abandoned and what are some of the conditions under which it is abandoned. Um, and so one of the most famous figures in this entire thing is, as the the great German, the, the philosopher of Königsberg, um, Immanuel Kant, who changes his position rather dramatically and in, in his, in his thinking about aesthetics, uh, his, his theory of art um, to one in which he, celebrates uh, certain kinds of higher intuit- imitation which is something that's very much part of his contemporaries thinking about both the economy and arts to coming to reject it and um and so again just as uh, a few chapters earlier i'm interested how does how do patents come to be about ideas um here i'm interested in how does how does originality become so important and why does it seem so toxic to have influences on us? Um, and ultimately this speaks to the questions that you mentioned at the very beginning of, of our discussion about some of the things motivating the book, which is how we understand Cultural creation, including technological creation, is it something determined by preexisting influences or is it something driven by uh, sort of mental processes, especially that of great geniuses? And this is a moment in which it's the latter that is coming to be celebrated, uh, particularly in the strata of high culture. While all along and in the realm of practical economic things, the facts of imitation, especially industrial espionage, are, are all there on the ground. So I wanted to get – I wanted to, to to highlight in some sense the oddity of that shift and understand a little bit of how that came to be possible in the, in, in the late 18th and early 19th century.
0: Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much um, for making time for all of this. Um, I just want to flag for listeners all the way through, we've been talking mostly about the chapters. There's also in the book, um, in a way that we haven't been talking about just entirely because of time, there's a thread that looks specifically, um, just as a reminder, at Charles Babbage's work um, in a series of carries. So if we had another hour, we would be talking all about Charles Babbage. Um, but this is just to remind uh, listeners when they become readers if they haven't already, that when they open the book, there's also this really rich story of how all of these themes and more that we've been talking about um, shape and inflect and can be reflected through a look at Charles Babbage's work on calculating machines. Now, some of that also takes the story into the 20th century um, to look at efforts to build a difference engine um, and look at the, the kind of ways that the builders of this difference engine um, engaged with and kind of evoked the kind of working strategies that they took from Babbage's work, um, which is really, really interesting. And also, one of the carries, the final carrier, the epilogue, um, talks among other things at the way that we might understand programming and programmers today as part of and in the context of an extension of this story. So, there's a lot here. Um, and uh, so, hopefully, listeners will become readers and have a chance to read all of that after listening. But in the meantime, Matt, there's a of course, a ton of stuff that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that hasn't come up but that you'd like to mention for our listeners? Uh,
1: Just briefly, I think, uh, something you evoked at the beginning, I I, I am interested in, well, where does this belong in the history of computing? Um, And throughout the book, I'm very much cataloging and exploring people's struggles with the the development of materials and their relationship to the development of ideas and um one thing i hope the book does is is to bring us into thinking of how we are going to explain a lot of uh, a, a technological change which doesn't fall into these two bifurcations, uh, into into this bifurcation of either thinking we need to fall in a sort of materialist history of the development of machines and labor history and a lot of sort of things, or an idealist one where it's the great invention of Leibniz or, or Turing. Um, I'm hoping actually to get people to understand not one answer to that question, but in fact often uh, really different relationships between those two poles are what are most generative, whether that's in the 17th or 18th century, or in dealing with a lot of really contemporary issues about uh, creation and credit today um, that have really uh, been important in uh, the open source and free software movements, but are really going to be sort of concrete struggles in which our uh, the thoughts about what, how technology develops really are, should be impacting how we think about public policy of ownership in, in things and, uh, and, and how that ownership uh, limits or encourages creation.
0: So now that the book is out, what's next for you, Matt? What are you currently working on and inspired by?
1: So I've jumped a bunch of centuries. Um, I said at the very beginning of the interview, I'm really interested in when do mathematicians different kinds of mathematicians end up as experts. So I've moved from Leibniz who wanted to have a particular kind of mathematics and be a master uh, that would be the sort of master discipline of the German state uh, in in the Baroque period to uh, the the contemporary data sciences, um, which are – you know, either the, the panacea, uh, the, the cure all for everything we have or the biggest demon that's coming along. Um, and so I've been charting, uh, uh, I've been charting the development in, um, uh, of this movement, uh, known as data mining and where did it come from? How is it different from earlier mathematical procedures? Where does its hubris come from and where are its real sort of limits? And along the way I ended up, you know, discovering that a not insubstantial portion of this has been funded by the intelligence services and and law enforcement services of um, uh, your country and my country and uh, <laughs> um, um, and and other sorts of things, and so I'm currently uh, in the midst of. Trying to complete a book on uh, the U.S. National Security Agency and its um, partners in 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 Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, which is a- about how is it that these new technologies of uh, dealing with large amounts of data um, come to be a central part of a surveillance apparatus in the 1990s and through the 2000s, and to move away from a narrative that said 9/11 caused it all um, to one that says, again, why is it that the kinds of transformations that uh, happen in Canada, the UK, and the United States in the wake of 9-11, what makes those possible in terms of technological developments about new computational and mathematical technologies, as well as legal transformations, um, that, in, in, such as uh, the idea that uh, so-called metadata is not something that, fa- that is constitutionally protected, whether you're in the US, um, Canada, or it doesn't fall into human rights regimes and other, other sorts of nations. So again, it's an attempt to, uh, to really say, where, how, how, what is the relationship between transformations in mathematical expertise and transformations in, in, in legal and political structures?
0: Well, best of luck with that, Matt. It sounds like another fascinating project. I hereby invite you to talk with me about that book when that's out. Um, <laughs> best of luck in the meantime. And thanks so much for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for your, uh, your, your lucid reading of my book and, uh, all the wonderful questions.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.